This is On Top of the Mount with Darren Waddles. Special thanks to Charles Dyson Sr.'s surviving children, Charles Dyson Jr., Nan Pamer, Kenny Dyson, Marlene Gleason, and Kim Dyson for allowing this podcast to record these priceless family treasures and great apostolic literary works as No Continuing City and Actions Are Weighed. Not only will this audiobook podcast be a memorial to my great-grandfather's legacy in the church and in the Pentecostal movement in Arkansas, but I would like to also dedicate the series to his jewel in life and our beloved grandmother, Marcella Dyson. No Continuing City by Charles R. Dyson Chapter 9 Must We Pentecostals Die as Fools? A compilation piece by Tom Fred or T.F. Tinney 2 Samuel 3.32-34 And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool death? The hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fallest thou. And all the people wept again over him. The foundation for the laws of ever great democracy traced their roots back to the Decalogue, to the laws that God gave Moses, that he might transmit them to Israel. One of these laws had to do with some cities that were called cities of refuge. The Lord commissioned Moses to tell the children of Israel after they had entered the land of promise. Pre-adventure, a man by accident would slay another man, not deliberately, but by accident or possibly because he was forced to in self-defense. The Lord said, Moses, I want you to set aside six cities in the land of Israel, three on one side of Jordan and three on the other. I want you to signify that these cities shall be known as cities of refuge, and when your brother accidentally or in self-defense slays his fellow man, he can rush to one of these cities of refuge, which are strategically placed throughout Palestine, and there be safe from the nearest kinsman of the one he has slain, the avenger of blood. Said the Lord to Moses, I want you to tell him that he is only safe from the avenger of blood as long as he stays in the confines of the walls of the city of refuge. He is not to leave the city until high priest, who then reigning over the city dies at his death, shall be free to leave. This is where we find Abner. He was one of David's mighty men, a man of valor, a general in his army. Several years before this event in 2 Samuel 3, Abner had slain Asahel, a brother of Joab. Joab also was a general in David's army, a man of valor and strength. 
Now it was not that Abner wanted to slay Asalel, Joab's brother. He begged the man not to pursue him. He begged the man to turn around. He asked him not to press him too close and force him to slay him. Asalel, charged with vanity and pride, pressed the mighty warrior, Abner, just a little too far, and he was slain. Of course, this immediately made Joab the avenger of blood, and from the day until the third chapter of Second Samuel, Abner had his permanent residence in Hebron, which was the nearest city of refuge. And there he had to stay until the death of the high priest. He knew the law. He knew who Joab was. He knew that he was the avenger of blood. But there came that city after one year passed, two years passed, and possibly three years, that Abner thought that it had all been forgotten. And after all, Joab was supposed to have been his friend. And what he did, he did because he was forced to do it and not out of the hatred of his heart. There came that day that Joab came to Hebron, the city of refuge, and he motioned to this man, Abner, and he said, Abner, I want you to come outside the gate of the city. I want to talk to you a little bit. There is something I want explained to you, something that I want to tell you, and I do not want to tell you inside the walls of the city. Abner should have known immediately that something did not ring right in this proposal and in that proposition. What is it that this man, Joab, would want to tell me outside the gates of the city of refuge that he could not tell me inside the gate? Abner knew the law. He knew that he was commissioned to stay in the city until the high priest died. He knew that the high priest was not dead and he was not released, but because of the enticing words of this man Joab, he thought, well, maybe I should. There were two things that caused Abner to leave the safety of the city of refuge. One was a very subtle, luring, deceptive outside pressure that said, come on, I have got something to tell you. The other was a spirit of compromise that was in his own heart that said, I will go just one time and it will not hurt. I do not believe that there is any harm in it. And after all, Joab has been my friend and he looks like my friend and he acts like my friend. And this dual nature of outside pressure and inside compromise worked and gnawed at the heart of and conviction of Abner until he took one step too many in the wrong direction. He stepped outside the city of refuge and immediately he was at the mercy of the avenger of blood. Joab smote him under the fifth rib before Abner ever had a chance to unsheathe his sword. David heard about it. Abner is dead. Joab slew him. King David went up weeping. He followed the coffin weeping and mourning. Crying bitterly, he said, O oh, Abner, died Abner as a fool. Abner, your hands were not bound, your feet were not in fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fallest thou. Abner, you died like a fool.
Your hands were not bound behind you. Your feet were not in fetters. You were a strong and capable man and one who knew the law of Moses. You knew that Hebron was your only place of safety, but because of a subtle luring voice from the outside and because of one weakening moment of compromise in your own heart, you stepped out and lost your own vital life. Gone, Abner. He said, you died like a fool dies. He looked at the lifeless form of that mighty warrior who could have lived for many years and fought many battles to come for the army of Israel. Oh, because of subtle, luring outside pressure and a spirit of compromise on the inside, he was a lifeless hulk in a coffin that would soon be placed six feet beneath the sod good to neither his king nor his nation. Again, David said, you died like a fool. There was not any necessity in it. It did not have to be. There was no reason for dying like a fool. My question for your consideration, my pertinent question to you in this 20th century, even to a fourth generation of Pentecostals, must we Pentecostals die like fools? Are our hands bound? Are our feet fettered? Has our God ever lost his power? Even in this wicked and untoward generation where sin abounds on every hand, have we forgotten the words of the book of God which says, Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound? Have we forgotten that our Lord is still able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think? Do we have to die like fools spiritually? Some time ago, we rented a large campground for a camp meeting in a northern state. The campground had been there for a hundred years, and in bygone days, it was used by a large denominational group of that state. I suppose its owners were the largest Pentecost denomination in North America. The old tabernacle had been built about 75 years previous, and it had seen some mighty moves of God in its former days. The old bishop who was in charge was a silver-haired gentleman who must have been nearing his 80th year. He came out and looked on at our services. It amused him and blessed him. He became thrilled and excited to see the glory of God manifested in the old tabernacle again. He would look at the brethren and say, I remember when our denomination had days like this. But, he said, you folks are going the same way that we did. You see, in our embryo stage, in our beginning belief, we needed the vital, infinite life. But in a few years, we matured and grew up. And we shed our skin of emotionalism. It was vital to begin with, but we do not need it anymore. Organizational structure has taken its place. We just do not need it anymore. And it will not be long until you folks will mature and be like we are. And the bishop thought he was paying us a compliment but my friend, I call it death. 
I do not mean to compare our church with any other denomination. I am not much for that because we do not compare our experience with any other, and we do not compare our message with any other. I think we can properly compare our history with others, but I know this, friend. If we let our faith die, we will die like fools because our hands are not bound and our feet are not fetters, and the Lord has not lost his power. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it is his will that this generation hear the full gospel message of Jesus Christ. We will die like fools, and I do not want to die. I hear the subtle pressure from the outside. The ecumenical movements say, some join us, be like us. We hear these reports from our missionaries in South America, where the supposedly holy men of their community pat them on the back and say, let us drop our denominational barriers and come together as one. It has not been too many months past until they swung at our missionaries' heads with hatchets and spilled their blood on the ground. We feel the south wind blow softly and subtly, and there may arise with us a voice that says, Well, have we been right all these years? This is our message that Jesus Christ bled and died on Calvary to give us his spirit in a born-again experience, that we be privileged to be buried in water baptism in his holy name for the remissions of sins and thereby take on his name. O oh God, may it never die in our generation, and if it does, we die as fools die. If ever God wanted to use us a people, our God wants to use us people in these closing days of time. A denomination wrote recently in one of their monthly periodicals some lovely things about us. At its present stage, the Pentecostal Church is perhaps 100 years away from that day when relaxation and accommodation to the world around it will be fairly complete. The fiery enthusiasms and the impoverished fathers will be displaced by the sedate and fashionable religion of their comfortable grandchildren and the stagnation of spiritual decay will set in, but this year probably is the finest hour of the Pentecostal movement. This article states that we are enjoying our finest hour, but if we follow the path and course of other church groups, it will not be long until religious decay will set in on our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. I recently read the statement of one theologian that said no so-called holiness church has ever endured over 50 years maintaining the original standards of its leaders half a century before. I read that once and I read it again. No church has ever endured over 50 years holding to the original tenets and convictions of their forefathers. Oh God! Keep us 
from the day when we would ever lose the sweet touch of the Holy Ghost and the dynamic move of the Spirit in our Pentecostal churches. Why does 50 years have to make the difference? The clock of time is ticking, the pendulum is swinging, and the shadows are lengthening, and history says you will not endure past the 50-year mark, but will we die with our hands not bound nor our feet fettered? Do we have to, because the old bishop says we would, a religious publication says we will, and the theologians say we must? Theologians have observed that every religious organization follows the same pattern. First comes revival, second comes organization, third comes education, fourth comes socialization, and fifth comes stagnation. We see we can die as a revival and live on as an organization. The machinery can clank on long after the oil has reached the danger point. We have enough social interest to hold us together as a people, but social interest is not enough. To look at Abner, you could say there is Abner. He looks like Abner, he feels like Abner, but life was gone. He was dead, and the next step was to bury I do not know how to fully say it, but I do not want us Pentecostals to die. I look at some of our young people who are fourth-generation Pentecostals, and I know that it has got to be personal with them or they will die. It cannot be they are Pentecostal just because mother and dad are just because grandmother and grandfather were. But Pentecostal has to be something that is deep and something that is personal. We have got many Goliaths coming on the fields and sometimes I am afraid we spend more time fighting our Goliaths than we do developing our Davids. The Lord let Goliath have a long time while he was developing a David in the sheep coat because the Lord knew if he could develop his David his David could take care of Goliath. Oh God, help us in this generation to develop our Davids into men that love this truth, women that love this truth, and teenagers that are Pentecostals, not because they were born once Pentecostals by parents, but born twice Pentecostals by experience. It is so easy to get in a rut of forced worship when Samuel came down and found that Saul had been officiating in the office of a priest, he said to Saul, Why did you do it? Saul replied, I did not want to really, but you did not come, so I forced myself. Our Lord is not interested in forced worship. I have been in services where you could feel the spirit of forced worship. It just was not spontaneous, and the preacher said, Let us all pray. And because the preacher said it, they prayed. And the preacher said, Let us all sing. And because the preacher said, Let us all sing, they all sang. The preacher said, The choir come, and the choir came, and the choir sang because they had learned how to sing. 
and the pianist knew how to play, and the organist knew how to play. God or no God, we can have services because we know how. We know how to play our instruments. We know how to build our sanctuaries. We know how to conduct our choirs. And we have even learned how to preach a little bit. But without the dynamics of the Holy Ghost, we are going to die. We have got to have it. We need God in the pulpit. We need God in our music. We need God in our singing. We need God in our lives. We need continually a fresh baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. The Holy Ghost is the vital life of any church. And when it is gone, the church dies. It decays. It rots by the wayside of denominationalism. It does not have to be that way when we can have spontaneous worship that comes through fasting and praying. I know that faith does not live in the past, but faith is nourished by the past, and the past has many lessons to teach us. Our old-timers who are alive today tell us that the present has taught them a few things, but I want you to know that the past history of Pentecostals should have taught us a few things. I have heard our old-time preachers talk about their mistakes in going into places and preaching revivals and getting a crowd together and then leaving them disorganized with no one to shepherd them. They admit their mistakes and they always thank God for our organizational efforts today. But as I look back in the past and see our brethren who may not have had the organizational efforts, I have to look back with a degree of pride over the facts that those old-timers learned the basic rudiments of Christianity. They learned how to wait on God. They learned how to pray. They learned how to fast. They learned how to come in contact with the Almighty, and this past should teach us a lesson. Thank God for our organizational efforts. We need them all, but let us never forget the principle that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Lord, teach us to wait. We are rearing a generation of young people that do not know how to wait on the Lord. They do not know because they have not been taught. They can have church without Him. They can carry on without Him, for they have learned a philosophy as a substitute, they may have learned to their own detriment. O oh God, must we die? We are living in a day of moral failure, spiritual climate of compromise, where men take the twilight position. Black is not black anymore. White is not white anymore. It is all an eerie gray. It is is a day of low visibility, spiritually speaking. It is a day when you hear much about coexistence and 38 parallels and submit conferences. If we are not careful, this sneaking, suave, subtle, satanic spirit of compromise and indecision will bring us to an armistice with the flesh to a compromise with the devil, and to the peace table with the world. 
2,000 years ago, there was a man nailed to a cross, a horizontal and perpendicular piece of timber, and hoisted to heaven. And from that day to this, the church has been at a cross with the world. O oh God, we just do not mix with sin anymore. The two must not be compatible. I hope we never get to the place where Paul would not feel at home to preach in our pulpit, where Paul could not feel at ease to say that all things I counted as lost, that I might gain Christ. I know we look back at some of these t teachings of that dynamic apostle of yore, and some might say, Paul, you are nothing but a senile old bachelor. I'm afraid that some of these modern beatniks would call him that. Oh, but my friend, that is not the Paul that I read about in the Word of God. He was not a senile old man. He did not always go around criticizing the brethren. He did not always go around slinging mud. He knew he could not sling mud without losing ground. A thousand times, no. But this man was a man that had a hold of the power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost, and he said, I came to you not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit, and everywhere that man went, they either had a revival or a riot, but something happened. I visited a convention some time back where a number of Pentecostal people of every walk of life and every sect and denomination came. It was a National Sunday School convention. I looked at those folks and listened to them. I did not fit. I knew I was not going to fit when I went, but I went anyhow. And they looked like the world and talked like the world. They even acted like the world, and I just questioned myself. Lord, either they were wrong 50 years ago, or they are wrong today because in my brief ministry, I can remember when they did not do that, when they loved and preached holiness and sanctification as defiantly as we do today. I got home, and I picked up one of their periodicals. I believe it must have been someone who attended the same convention I did. A lady sent in a question to the question and answer section and wrote, I saw the wives of some of our high officials with bobbed hair and makeup. Do we not believe what we used to believe? The fellow that answered it said, Of course we do. Our General Assembly in the year 1910 went down on record as being opposed to the cutting of hair and wearing of makeup. And the General Assembly of 1928 reaffirmed it. And the General Assembly of 1949 reaffirmed it. Of course we believe it. On paper they said they believe it. I thought, dear Lord, I would rather have holiness as a practice and not as a doctrine than to have holiness as a doctrine and not a practice. Oh God! Will we ever get to the place where we believe it, but when everyone goes straight away, 
and lives as he pleases in his own eyes? O God, help us to have holiness, not only as a practice and as precept, but as a deep principle and a conviction in our hearts. There is a difference between opinion and conviction. You are apt to change your opinion, but you will die for your conviction if you really believe it in your heart. Israel died. Their history is one of revival, repentance, restoration. Judges 2.10 tells us why they had their original death. The Bible said in Judges 2, 7 through 10, When Joshua and all the elders died, a generation arose that knew not the Lord. That did not mean they did not know who Jehovah was. That did not mean they could not say their catechism. That did not mean that they could not quote the Ten Commandments. You see, we can be ritualistic in Pentecostal circles and run Pentecostal beads if you please. No, they knew that, but they did not have a personal acquaintance with Jehovah. They knew everything about him, but they did not know him. Could it be that we could know everything about Pentecost and not know the God of Pentecost? Could it be that we have become more wrapped up in winning people to a way than in winning them to a Savior? A generation arose that knew not the Lord. They just did not know Him. They went through the rituals of the law. They still had their priest. They still offered their sacrifices. But they did not know the Lord, and they died. We read in the book of Revelation the Lord's commendation of the church at Ephesus. He said, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your zeal, I know your patience. Why, Ephesus, you are even doctrinally right because you tried those who said they were apostles and found them false. But, he said, I have got something against you. He did not say you have lost your first love. He said you left it. You just walked off and left it. You kept your doctrines with you. You kept your works with you. You kept your zeal with you, but you left your personal devotion. Did you ever read in the 19th chapter of Acts where the church was born? She was born in a blaze of glory. Revival swept the city. They burned books. They tore up idols. Do not tell me this gospel will not clean up your house. It did at Ephesus. Do not tell me it will not clean up your reading material. It did at Ephesus. They built a big bonfire and the silversmiths who made the images of the godless Diana stood in the streets and shouted for hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And there was the apostolics throwing every time they shouted. There was nothing they could do. What a glorious church. Fifty years later, John wrote about the church in the book of Revelation. Fifty years and a second and a third and a fourth generation that 
were not there when the silversmith shouted and the books were burned and Paul had preached. All they had handed down to them was a story of what happened, and that story became impersonal. They had a church, and they had an organization. They worked and had zeal. They were doctrinally right, but they just did not love him like they used to. Fifty years is what happened to them. Fifty years is what happened to them and things that their forefathers died for. They accepted for granted and luxuriated in them, and it just was not personal with them. And Ephesus, he said, you left your first love. As the glory departs, Ephesus reaches for a crutch, a substitute to limp off on and die. Like Israel, the glory goes from the temple while the temple remained. A generation arose that knew not the Lord. I believe our greatest battle for truth is going to be fought in this generation. I believe if my Christ tarries, this church is on the brink of one of the greatest revival in history. I believe that God in these last days wants to revive his work. This is the latter rain. He gave the former rain moderately, but oh, this latter rain, the restored apostolic church which the locust and the canker worm had eaten our God has brought back to full flourishing, and he wants us to let our heavy-headed sheaves of wheat fly in the wind just before the harvest as a wave offering to this generation that it is harvest time. Freedom is never won conclusively. It must be fought for by each succeeding generation, and that is so true. In several major wars, we Americans have had to fight for our freedom. Every generation has to. It is never won conclusively. Well, holiness, like freedom, is never won conclusively. It has got to be fought for by every succeeding generation, and this generation will have to fight for these glorious truths, just like our forefathers. I walk into some churches with empty prayer rooms. It is disturbing and alarming. Dear Lord, we need the plus of the Spirit of God. Every accomplishment we have made is good, but we have got to keep the extra margin of the Spirit. If we do not, empty altars and waterless baptistries will become the badge of our unctionless intellectualism. We have got to have the dynamics of the Holy Ghost. We have gotten talents, and we have churches, and all those things are wonderful, but we need an old-fashioned burden. It is harder today to get folks under a burden than it ever has been in my brief ministry. We know how to come to church, and we know how to organize, and we know how to carry on the mechanics, but oh, God, where are those who would travail in Zion?
We cannot change the book. When Zion travails, sons and daughters shall be born and not before. God give us that burden and give us that spirit of compassion. Pentecost produces passion, and the first question to that passion is this. How much do you love Jesus? And the second question to that passion is how much do you value man? Give us that Pentecostal passion. That is the impellent to us that can take this church to the greater heights of revival that the Lord has ordered for her. Sloppy worship has no place in our midst. What we are impresses God more than what we do. We must understand that we have got to glow in order to grow. We can actually become a beehive of activity with more hum than honey. Oh, the barrenness of business. We can run the squirrel cage of religious activity and get so involved in work of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the work. Even as much as I travel and stay in the work of God continually, I face this crisis every week, every month. I do not want to lose my personal touch with people and with my God. Somehow, I have got to know, Lord, how your people live, how they breathe, how they mark their sheaves, how they handle their problems and how they die. I have got to learn how to grapple with humanity and not just with the mechanics of religion. Something dies in a man when he loses touch with people. Something dies when he forgets how people live and their problems when he becomes an island of conceit surrounded by self-ego and he is self-centered. Something dies. There is a world out there that is already doomed to death, and I do not want to die. I do not want to walk through the elephant graveyard of denominationalism and see the bleached bones of Pentecostals there. I want it to live. You see, people can come into our churches. They look at our ladies with long hair and they can say, I do not believe that. I do not think it is necessary. They can look at Pentecostal women's faces and say, I do not think it is necessary for you to go without makeup. They can look at our men and say, I do not think it is necessary for you not to smoke. They can listen to the preacher and say, I do not believe what he is preaching is necessary. They can deny everything we preach, but they cannot deny what they feel in our services. I have got some children. I wonder what kind of Pentecostal heritage I will leave them. I wonder if they will ever look back like the aged bishop and talk about what happened 50 years ago and talk about how the old timers used to shout. I wonder if my children will laugh 50 years from today and say, remember how mother and dad used to act? I wonder if they will ever talk about how they used to think it was necessary to preach real loud and excited. Will they chuckle and say, 
they used to have guitars in church? Remember that? Ha ha. And remember how dad would get happy and run around the benches in church? I do not know what kind of conversation will be held 50 years from now. I know God is going to have a people. He is going to have a remnant. He has already declared that, but the thing that I want to be assured is that I will be in the group. I want my children to know Pentecost as I know it today in the dynamics of the Spirit. I do not want this experience to die. If I can just keep the coals alive in my bosom, if I can keep the flames leaping from my altars, then maybe I can help ignite them, and if we can leave them blazing with the truth, then we have ensured Pentecost for our prosperity. We do not have to die. We have been made alive by the Spirit, and the same Spirit that imparts life makes us adequate. It is not written, Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. This brings life, not death. The fifth chapter of the Song of Solomon, which is not a mythical love lure of sensualism, but it is a beautiful story of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. The bridegroom says, I went through the garden and plucked myrrh and took gifts to the house and my beloved, the bride. The bridegroom said, as I came through the garden to purchase gifts for her, I knocked on her door. The voice from within from the bride said, I have taken off my cloak. I have lain down on the bed. I am so tired. The essence of the story is this. Do I have to get up and let you in with your gifts that you purchased through the garden? But finally, in laziness and the crying sin of the church is her laziness after God. Finally, the bride arises from her bed in ease and went to the door to open to her lover. She put her hand on the handle and opened the door, but he was gone. She said, My hand dripped with the fragrance of his myrrh, where he had touched the handle, but he was gone, and all she had was a fragrance of a past presence, the smell of something that once stood there, but was gone. She said, I cried to him, but he did not answer me. I went into the street and screamed, but he did not answer me. I went to the watchman and said, Have you seen him whom my soul loveth? But my beloved was gone. I do not want to be left with the fragrance of a past presence. I do not want to be left with a testimony of what the Lord did 25 years ago or 50 years ago. I do not want to have to take people in the future to memorial stones and talk about what used to be, but I want that Jesus Christ that is the same yesterday and today and forever to keep my soul alive. Do not be so lazy that you will not pay the price. Do not be so lazy and self-indulgent that you will not arise from your bed of ease and run to the door when you hear him knocking saying, Yes, Lord, come in. We need you. We want you. We must have you, or we die as fools die. End of chapter 9
Thank you for listening to this episode of On Top of the Mount. I hope you've enjoyed this audiobook series. If you have any questions or suggestions for future podcasts, please email me at draywattles at gmail.com or you can add me on social media through Facebook and Instagram, d underscore raywattles. And until next time, you'll be hearing from me on top of the mountain.